Hey, my new book is out, The Hidden History of American Democracy. Most Americans just learned from reporting this week in the New York Times that Trump, billionaire-funded right-wing think tanks, and some of the leaders of the GOP have a plan to flip America from a democratic republic into an authoritarian strongman type of government should he or another like-minded MAGA Republican win the White House in 2024. This would be the death knell of democracy, the crisis I warned about in, I warned about in my new book, and an historic disaster of almost unimaginable proportions, given how much influence our nation has on other democracies around the world. This week, my, that new book, The Hidden History of American Democracy, Rediscovering Humanity's Ancient Way of Living, hits the bookstores. You can find it on Amazon and Powell's Books and anywhere else books are available. What follows is the uh, table of contents and two excerpted chapters. This was one of the most fascinating of the Hidden History series for me to research and write. It confirmed my beliefs that progressive and small-D democratic ideals are intrinsic to our humanity and that today's MAGA GOP's idea of hierarchy and top-down governance destroys nations and their people and that the founders and framers of the Constitution knew it. I hope you find it fascinating and can pick up a copy of the book. We start with the introduction. The grand experiment of American democracy didn't come out of thin air, and it was only marginally based on the experience of the Greek democracies and the Roman Republic, contrary to what most people believe. The one great universal impulse that animates humans working towards self-governance the world over is freedom, an escape from bonds laid by one, on one people by another, by the powerful over the powerless, by the rich over the poor. As Europeans began driving deep into the American landscape throughout the 17th and 8th, early 18th centuries, stories began to trickle back to Europe about people who had figured out how to live in civilized society without the chains of oppression, both political and religious, that were the hallmarks of that era. Some came from fresh French missionaries to the Indians, others from trappers and traders, and still others from people like Thomas Jefferson's father, Peter, who made maps and traveled in what became the Commonwealth of Virginia for his work. Stories spread of these extraordinary people, these Indians, who governed themselves without prisons, chains, or even police. Native Americans who'd become fluent in English or French traveled to Europe and challenged inequality, theocracy, and royalty to its face. The intelligentsia of France in particular was consumed with the idea that egalitarian self-governance might not just be possible, but might even be the natural or original state of humankind. These viral ideas swept Europe every bit as completely as had Martin Luther's 93 the 95 Theses, which he had nailed to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg on October 31, 1517. As the philosophers of the European Enlightenment were struck by these novel ideas, contradicting their biblical and historical notions of the evil nature of mankind, the notions of equality and fraternity flowed back across the Atlantic to inflame the minds of the 18th century American colonists. While there's not a one-to-one -one correlation between the governing principles of, for example, the Iroquois Confederacy and the U.S. Constitution, the core principles animating both were nearly identical. Equality of citizenship. Government is legitimate only through the consent of the governed. Men who claim power through hereditary lineage or a direct line to the gods must be limited in the power they can acquire or possess. Greed and unbridled power are evil. Society's highest obligation is to care for all its people, not merely to serve those with the highest status or wealth.
our founding generation integrated these concepts into a coherent governing philosophy and then after independence crafted them into a clumsy attempt at constitutional self-governance. It was a bold and dangerous experiment, defying as it did a thousand years of European history and the greatest powers of the world at that time. Democracy within tribal communities has a long history that's not limited to modern nations of the world. Jefferson was obsessed with the democracy practiced by his tribal ancestors living in the British Isles before they were conquered by the Romans 1,700 years earlier. Virtually every ethnography of tribal people living the way humans did for hundreds of thousands of years before the advent of agriculture and the rise of modern warlord kingdoms describes them as egalitarian, be they the ancient son of southern Africa, the seafaring people who populated the South Pacific, or the tribes of Central America before they were conquered by the Aztec and Mayan empires. Democracy, it turns out, is the default state of virtually every animal species on Earth, and humanity is no exception. Only with the power of great wealth, control of media, or the force of arms and technology is it overcome by dictators, popes, and kings. Part 1. The Founders Meet Ancient Democracy There was a full moon that night in a cloudless sky. Thomas Jefferson watched respectfully as the elders and the head women, as he'd come to call them, gathered to sit on blankets in a place of great honor near the famous Cherokee warrior on a set where he was about to speak. Although Jefferson was only 19, at 6'2", he was conspicuously tall among the Indians and was treated as an adult, the same as his companion, the 28-year-old Thomas Sumter. Although his shyness prevented from him speaking of it publicly, Jefferson knew he'd earned the right to be considered an adult the year of his 14th birthday when his life was shattered by his father's death and he inherited full and legal responsibility for his mother, two brothers, six sisters, and 60 enslaved people, along with the family's farm. He watched as the sparks from the fire flew toward the moonlit sky, listening to the strange language of the Cherokee and the creek around him. He understood a few of their words, and later in life he would study their languages with the same sharp mind that enabled him to learn to read and write Greek, Latin, and French before he was a teenager. Sumter, his companion, was a strong and aggressive man. The contrast between the two, the bold fighter and the lanky, red-haired, freckle-faced scholar, was distinct. Jefferson was in his last year of studies at the College of William and Mary, about to study law in a few months, while Sumter, who had left home as a teenager to fight in the French and Indian Wars, would leave the next day to escort Anaset to meet the King of England. Neither knew it that night, but Sumter would one day be a general in the War for Independence, and Jefferson would write the document that formerly declared it. Sumter's older sister, Patience, was a well-known midwife in Jefferson's community and may well have helped Jefferson's mother give birth to some of his younger siblings, as Jefferson recommended his, her services to others. The sounds of the Cherokee language and the sight of the people assembling brought back for Jefferson childhood memories of the many times Anaset had visited while traveling from his Cherokee village to Williamsburg, Virginia. Anaset liked to spend the night at the Shadwell, Virginia farm of Peter Jefferson, and often Peter had invited his young son Thomas to join him and Anaset in conversations that stretched long into the evening. Peter Jefferson knew many of the native people of the region. He was the sort of man who made friends instantly, and he had a fascination with native people and culture. He had come to know hundreds of their leaders as he mapped the Virginia colony 11 years earlier in 1751. Thomas was nine the year Peter mapped Virginia. Peter died five years later. So much in answer to your inquiries concerning Indians, Thomas Jefferson wrote to John Adams in June of 1812. 
of people with whom in the early part of my life I was very familiar and acquired impressions of attachment and commiseration for them which have never been obliterated. Before the revolution, they were in the habit of coming often and in great numbers to the seat of government, where I was very much with them. I knew much the great honest set, the warrior and orator of the Cherokees. He was always the guest of my father on his journeys to and from Williamsburg. On June 19, 1754, when Jefferson was only nine years old, Benjamin Franklin had introduced the Albany Plan of Union at a meeting attended by both his revolutionary compatriots and a delegation from the Iroquois Confederacy. Franklin had earlier attended an Iroquois condolence ceremony in 1753 and used Iroquois symbols in both his writings and his design for early American currency. In 1770, Franklin wrote, Happiness is more generally and equally diffused among savages than in civilized societies. No European who has tasted savage life can afterwards bear to live in our societies. By that time, the phenomenon of white Indians was well known in America and widely reported across Europe. People who had been taken captive by Native Americans in battle or otherwise ended up among them and who then refused, sometimes even running away repeatedly when rescued, to return to white society. The heavy influence of Native American forms of government, particularly that of the Iroquois, was a hot topic of conversation during Jefferson's childhood, and his father's close association with many Indians, particularly on a set, brought to the now teenage Jefferson an appreciation and understanding of the event he had been invited to witness. The assembled Cherokees sat, as did Jefferson and Sumter, and Anaset began his farewell address. Although the Cherokee had signed their first treaty with England more than 40 years earlier, colonists subject to the King of England had continued to encroach on Cherokee land and slaughter villagers. Anaset had discussed this and similar matters with the King's men in Williamsburg, and now was making an official visit to King George II himself, one head of state to another. Even though he would be the second representative of the Cherokee to cross the Atlantic in the giant ships, most operated by the East India Company, the crossings were always risky, and he didn't know if he'd ever see his family and friends again. He began his speech, as was the custom of his people, with thanks and prayers. I was in his camp when he made his great farewell oration to his people the evening before his departure for England, Jefferson wrote in that letter to Adams many years later. The moon was in full splendor, and to her he seemed to address himself in his prayers for his own safety on the voyage and that of his people during his absence. His sounding voice, distinct articulation, animated action, and the solemn silence of his people at their several fires filled me with awe and veneration, although I did not understand a word he uttered. Although he didn't then speak Cherokee, the teenage Thomas Jefferson understood the essence of Anaset's farewell address. The Cherokee were a people of culture and civilization, but they had suffered terribly both from recurrent smallpox epidemics and from a series of betrayals by the British colonists with whom they had aligned themselves during the French and Indian War. The treaties of 1721, 1754, and 1759 between the Cherokee and England had collapsed, and later in 1759 Virginia colonists killed and mutilated 20 young Cherokee men collecting a bounty on their scalps. This and another land grab by the British in 1760 led to a bloody two-year war between England and the Cherokee. Anaset, unaware that in just 11 short years the British would be in an all-out shooting war with rebellious colonists, was hoping to make a final and lasting treaty of peace with King George II. That nation, consisting now of about 2,000 warriors and the Creeks of about 3,000, are far advanced in civilization, Jefferson continued in his letter to Adams. By Jefferson's presidency in the early 1800s, the Cherokee had created a written language of 86 letters, published their own newspaper called the Phoenix, 
and adopted a constitution similar to that of the Iroquois. Quote, they have good cabins and closed fields, large herds of cattle and hogs, spin and weave their own clothes of cotton, Jefferson wrote, have smiths and other of the necessary tradesmen, read and write, and are on the increase in numbers, and a branch of Cherokees is now instituting a regular representative government. Adams replied to Jefferson's letter on June 28, 1813, writing, I know not what, unless it were the prophet of Tippecanoe, had turned my curiosity to inquiries after the metaphysical science of the Indians, their ecclesiastical accomplishments, and theological theories. But your letter, written with all the accuracy, perspicuity, and elegance of your youth and middle age, as it has given me great satisfaction, deserves my best thanks. I am weary of contemplating nations from the lowliest and most beastly degradations of human life to the highest refinement of civilization. I am weary of philosophers, theologians, politicians, and historians. They are an immense mass of absurdities, vices, and lies. Montesquieu had enough sense to say in jest that all our knowledge might be comprehended in twelve pages of duodecimo, and I believe him in earnest. I could express my faith in shorter terms. He who loves the workman and his work, and who does what he can to preserve and improve it, shall be accepted of him. I have also felt an interest in the Indians, and a commiseration for them from my childhood. Aaron Palmum, the priest, and Moses Palmum, the king of the uh, Punkangang and Eponset tribes, were frequent visitors at my father's house at least 70 years ago. I have a distinct remembrance of their forms and figures. They were very aged and the tallest and stoutest Indians I have ever seen. The titles of king and priest and the names of Moses and Aaron were given them, no doubt, by our Massachusetts divines and statesmen. There was a numerous family in this town whose wigwam was within a mile of this house. This family were frequently at my father's house, and I, in my boyish rambles, used to call it their wigwam, where I never failed to be treated with whortleberries, blackberries, strawberries, or apples, plums, peaches, etc., for they had planted a variety of fruit trees about them. But the girls went out to service and the boys to sea till not a soul is left. We scarcely see an Indian in a year now. Back in May of 1776, as the war with Britain was already underway and a debate was ongoing in Philadelphia about a formal declaration of independence and the formation of a new nation, a delegation of 21 Iroquois arrived at the Continental Congress. Two years earlier, at the Albany Conference, they had openly raised questions with their friend Ben Franklin about a government with a chief executive and had been welcomed to the 1775 Continental Congress by John Hancock himself, who addressed a Delaware chief by saying of the meeting that, quote, this council fire is kindled for all the United Colonies, end quote. When the Iroquois arrived in Philadelphia, the president of the Continental Congress invited them to watch the debates. They were treated as visiting dignitaries and wise elders. The second floor of Independence Hall, then the Pennsylvania State House, was given them to sleep in for over a month while they watched the near-daily discussions. And Richard Henry Lee wrote that on May 17, 1776, the newly formed American Army paraded more than 2,000 troops down the streets of Philadelphia for their review. The Pennsylvania Gazette reported on the parade, saying that the members of Congress and the Indians on business with the Congress reviewed the troops along with General Washington, General Mifflin, and General Gates. Three weeks later, after speeches were made expressing friendship that would continue as long as the sun shall shine, an Onondaga chief gave Hancock the Iroquois name of Duan, meaning great tree, in a ceremony carefully recorded by attendee Charles Thompson. 
The friendship struck up between the Onondaga and George Washington, apparently at this time, was so strong that an Onondaga woman accompanied Washington during most of the Revolutionary War as his cook, and the Onondaga saved Washington and his men from starving during the bitter, bitter winter, winter at Valley Forge by bringing them corn and other food. John Adams was there and apparently noticed the events and discussions. In his book, A Defense of the Constitutions of Government of the United States, written while the new Constitution for the United States was being hammered out, he noted how the ancient British and Germanic tribes, described by Tacitus and Paul de Rapinda Taras, and many of the Native American tribes he had personally known, represented branches of the human race who practiced the three branches of government form of democracy that he and Jefferson advocated for the new United States. Adams pointed out that the Roman historian Tacitus thought a three-branch democracy was laudable, but the Tacitus doubted its practical ability and duration, and that the great experiment America was about to undertake had never been done successfully by civilized people. But it had succeeded, and the Iroquois were living proof. Adams wrote, It would have been much to the purpose to have, in, to have inserted a more accurate investigation of the forms of government of the ancient Germans and modern Indians, in both, the existence of the three divisions of power is marked with a precision that excludes all controversy. The democratical branch, especially, is so determined that the real sovereignty resided in the body of the people. He added, To collect together the legislation of the Indians would take much room, but it would be well worth the pains. The sovereignty is in the nation, it is true, but the three powers are strong in every tribe. Some founders thought their enlightenment came from Rousseau, most modern histories of American democracy trace our form of government to debates, discussions, and writings by men considered the fathers of the Enlightenment, particularly Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Hobbes, in his works, The Elements of Law, 1640, De Siva, 1642, Leviathan, 1651, and Behemoth, 1682, argued that it was possible for people to live in harmony, both domestically and among nations, only when human nature was restrained by the iron fist of church or state. Without such a leviathan, a massive and powerful church or government, Hobbes believed humanity would revert to its default state, as he imagined we experienced before Western civilization emerged. As he wrote in Leviathan about when humanity lacked these powerful restraints against human nature, quote, In such condition there is no place for industry, because the fruit thereof is uncertain, and consequently no culture of the earth no navigation or use of the commodities to be imported by sea, no commodious building, no instruments of moving and removing such things as require much force, no knowledge of the face of the earth, no account of time, no arts, no letters, no society, and which is worst of all, continual fear and danger of violent death, and the life of man solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. His skepticism of human nature notwithstanding, Hobbes's major contribution to kicking off the Enlightenment was his assertion that once the overarching Leviathan superstructure secured the safety of people from each other, we humans would be capable of governing ourselves. During a time when it was a crime to challenge the authority of the king, this was a major breakthrough on the road toward democracy. Hobbes was followed by John Locke, whose two treatises of government and an essay concerning human understanding, both in 1690, argued that human nature wasn't as grim as Hobbes postulated, that humans were essentially good, although some among us could be evil, and because of that, self-governance without a king or church was possible. Locke went so far in an effort that could have endangered his own freedom 
to explicitly renounce the influence of the church on the religiously sanctioned governments of his time. In an essay concerning human understanding, Locke wrote that the kingdom of Europe, kingdoms of Europe that looked to the Catholic or Anglican church for the, their legitimacy, quote, can allow none to be right but the received doctrines. In response to attackers who charged that he was willing to overturn a millennium of the divine right of kings and replace them with the radical ideas of democracy and egalitarian that were all then the rage in Europe, Locke wrote, quote, Truth scarce ever yet carried it, carried it by vote anywhere in its, at its first appearance. New opinions are always suspected and, always, and usually opposed without any other reason but because they are not already common. But truth, like gold, is not the less f- so for being newly bought out of the mine brought out of the mind. It is trial and examination must give it a price and not any unique fashion. And though it is to it be not yet current by the public stamp, yet it may, for all that, be as old as nature and is certainly not the less genuine. The largest debate of the time was about the natural state of mankind. If we based our governments on our essential nature, it would take a lot less effort to extract compliance by the people to laws of that government. While Hobbes was on record as believing the necessity of the iron fist of church or state to keep order in society, Locke believed that nature herself provided us in the natural world with a set of operating instructions. Man being born, as has been proved, with a title to perfect freedom, he wrote in two treatises, and an uncontrolled enjoyment of all the rights and privileges of the law of nature, equally with any other man or or number of men in the world, hath by nature a power not only to preserve his property, that is, his life, liberty, and estate, against the injuries and attempts of other men. Locke's life, liberty, and estate was cribbed by Thomas Jefferson, who had read two treatises three times, and rewritten as the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in the Declaration of Independence. Locke also set up Jefferson's adding happiness to the mix in human understanding. Quote, Nature, I confess, has put into man a desire of happiness and an aversion to misery, these indeed are innate principle, practical principles. But it was Jean-Jacques Rousseau who put the final touches on the Enlightenment a century after Hobbes stirred things up so much. Rousseau believed that the laws of nature were essentially democratic and noble, and that the closer humanity could come to following natural law, the closer we'd be to a life of freedom and happiness. Those whom nature destined to make her disciples have no need of teachers, he wrote in his 1750 Discourse on the Arts of science and Sciences. There you see how luxury, dissolution, and slavery have in every age been the punishment for the arrogant w- efforts we have made in order to emerge from the happy ignorance where eternal wisdom had placed us. That happy ignorance was the original state of humankind, Rousseau argued in contrast to Hobbes's grim view, adding regretfully, Thanks to typographic characters and the way we use them, the dangerous reveries of Hobbes and Spinoza will remain forever. Rousseau's Discourse on the Arts and Sciences and his later Discourse on the Origin and Basis of Inequality Among Men, 1754, and The Social Contract or Principle of Political Rights, 1762, electrified the young men who became America's revolutionary generation. As John Adams wrote to Thomas Jefferson on November 15, 1813, quote, When aristocracies are established by human laws and honor, wealth, and power are made hereditary by municipal laws and political institutions, then I acknowledge artificial aristocracy to commence. But this never commences till corruption in elections become dominant and uncontrollable. But this artificial aristocracy can never last. 
the everlasting envies, jealousies, rivalries, and quarrels among them, their cruel rapacities among the poor, ignorant people, their followers, compel these to set up Caesar, a demagogue, to be a monarch and master. Poor Metra Chakum Ansa Palas. Here you have the origin of all artificial aristocracy, which is the origin of all monarchy. We, to be sure, are, are far remote from this. Many hundred years must roll away before we shall be corrupted. Our pure, virtuous, public-spirited, federative republic will last forever, govern the globe, and introduce the perfection of man, his perfectibility having been proved by Price Priestley, Cordeset Rousseau, Diderot, and Godwin. Probably Rousseau's most famous statement, echoed in sentiment by John Adams, was this, Man is born free, and everywhere he is in chains. In his letters written from the mountain, Rousseau argues, freedom consists less in doing one's will than in not being submitted to that of other people. It consists furthermore in not submitting others' will to our own. Whoever is master cannot be free and to, and to reign is to obey. And how would that work out? The most necessary and perhaps the most difficult task of government, he wrote in his Economy Politique, is found in rendering justice to all and especially in protecting the poor against the tyranny of the rich. Later, in Economy Politique, Rousseau added, What man loses by the social contract is his natural freedom and an unlimited right to everything that tempts him and that he can reach. What he gains is civil liberty and the ownership of everything he possesses. In a statement echoed by Americans, America's founders, he concluded, quote, A free people obeys, but it does not serve. It has leaders, but not masters. It obeys laws, but it only obeys laws, and it is through the force of laws that it does not obey men. Voltaire, 17 years before the Declaration of Independence was signed, weighed in as well. All men have an equal right to liberty, he wrote, to the enjoyment of their own property and to the protection of the laws. John Adams, in 1744, wrote in the Massachusetts Gazette that the government of England had failed to be a government of laws and not of men. He was elected 35 years later, in 1799, to help draft the Massachusetts Constitution, which, probably by no coincidence, contains the following Article 30. Quote, in the government of this commonwealth, the legislative department shall never exercise the executive and judicial powers, or either of them. The executive shall never exercise the legislative and judicial powers, or either of them. The judicial shall never exercise the legislative and executive powers, or either of them, to the end that it may be a government of laws and not of men. In America, Rousseau is probably best known for his advocacy of the noble savage, and in France for Robespierre quoting his Give us liberty or all is lost, while ordering the execution of French nobles. But his impact on the American revolutionaries can't be ignored. So where did Locke and Rousseau get their heretical for their day's ideas? Locke's predecessor, Hobbes, was clearly influenced by the naked brutality of the 17th century Europe, where only a narrow sliver of men of wealth had any rights at all, and even these could be dispatched by the king or a local lord with a word. Hobbes is the patron saint of the modern, modern political right, Locke and Rousseau of the left, a situation that has persisted since the 1700s. But what influenced Locke and Rousseau to imagine the society after millennia of brutal warlords, theocrats, and kings could govern itself and, as a result, live in peace and harmony? <laughs> 